I think it is so strange having spent my entire life like fighting tooth and nail against the idea that I am an incurably sad and like fucked up person and then to like search up my name on Twitter and see that people are tweeting like Rainfisher Kwan is the ultimate sad girl or that people have like Spotify playlists called like Rainfisher Kwan depression vibes <laughs> that's real Rain Fisher Kwan is a young Canadian essayist and niche social media celebrity. She's 21 years old, she has hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok, and she writes on Substack under the name Internet Princess. Recently, Rain came to the Substack office in San Francisco, and we recorded this conversation in front of the whole company. In it, we discussed the highs and lows of the attention economy, the hostility of TikTok, and the fine line between open discussion of mental illness and commodifying it on social media. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Rain Fisher Kwan. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here in San Francisco. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to start off with an old man question, which is, what is it like to try and figure out who you are as an adult? Especially like an intellectual person, a writer, someone who's putting ideas out into the world, while growing up so influenced by social media? Um, I would say it's hard. <laughs> it's, I mean, I'm 21, and I do often feel, I think maybe a lot of people of every age group feel like this, but I do kind of feel like I was like the last age group to kind of get out a little bit unscathed like and I know that it's like different I'm sure that a lot of people of different generations would look at me and think that my experiences were totally foreign but like when I see what 15 and 16 year olds are consuming on TikTok right now and the way that their identities are just being forcibly commodified and shaped for corporate profit in a way that is like totally unprecedented it like makes my blood run cold and that's like a lot of what I write about and I do feel very lucky that I feel like the internet was a little bit of a different place when I was like 15, 16. The algorithms weren't as good. The like kind of corporations hadn't caught on as much as they have now to young people as this consumer force and this very like, I don't know, kind of like moldable consumer force. But even still, it, it's it's definitely really shaped my life in a, in a way that it is still hard for me to tell if it's negative or positive. And I mean, I think it's both. I feel so lucky for everything that the internet has given me and for what social media has given me. I mean, like having hundreds of thousands of followers has just obviously changed my life and given me a wealth of opportunities that people who were in my situation couldn't imagine having in a time that social media didn't exist. But it also has warped my brain and made me reactive and obsessive and like fearful and desperate for attention and validation. And that's the things that, and convinced that I have ADHD and that's like the, the, the things that these platforms do exist to do. And it's quite strange. I mean, even now to be very critical of, of those things and to be aware of them and to still feel it happening and it's it's definitely weird. It's weird to try to figure out who you are in a time where your identity is like uniquely valuable as a consumer object. What were you thinking when you picked up the phone, pointed the camera at your face, and made your first 
TikTok video? What were you hoping to achieve? I mean, at that time, it was like maybe 2020. It was the pandemic. TikTok was still kind of a joke. Like, uh, especially, I don't know if you guys remember, but like in 2019 and 2020, like TikTok was like a joke platform that everybody made fun of. And it was still kind of cringe. And it was, and it maybe is a little cringe now, but it definitely was really cringe that I was doing it. But over the pandemic, that's when a lot of people started like, you know, doing TikTok because they were bored or because they had free time or because like the people in their high schools couldn't make fun of them or whatever. (laughs) And I, a lot of it was that I was bored. My first video was like, I was just making a joke with my friend or whatever. And it did like weirdly, it got like a million views and I got like 10,000 followers like off of this one, my first video, which was really strange. That's how they get you. (laughs) That's how they get you. No, seriously. Um, It actually is super interesting. Like the first videos that you make on TikTok are always like uniquely pushed by the algorithm because they want to give you that like taste of success or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I had always been extremely interested in media criticism and in politics and pop culture. And I started making videos about feminism mostly. And that took off, which was really cool. And TikTok's where you have your largest audience. I think it's like 250,000 people are following you there. Mm-hmm. 40-ish thousand on Instagram, 40-ish yeah. thousand on Twitter. Yeah. Is TikTok where you put most of your energies? Is that, the, is that the place where you send people when you say, like, come and follow me? It used to be. I mean, it definitely, like, making a video is quite work intensive compared to like sending off a tweet or something like that. But I really don't love TikTok as a site for like the things that I want to do and the the things that I want to talk about. Um, It's like almost a, a joke with anybody who tries to make like analytical or critical content on TikTok that it's just like a uniquely hostile environment. What do you mean by that? People are almost incentivized to misunderstand you and to like, like this is something that everybody talks about. Like all of my friends who have followers on TikTok, it's just like a known thing that you have to assume that the majority of your audience is going to be actively looking for the most egregious way to misunderstand what you're saying, which is not only like a terrible experience because you have people like, like accusing you of thoughts that like maybe no person has ever thought before in history. Um, And that's like strange and surreal, but it also, I think really interestingly, like makes you a worse writer and a worse thinker when you, a lot of people on TikTok, you can sort of tell when people produce a lot of content on TikTok or Twitter because they will write in a way that is like reflexively defensive of assumptions that no sane person would make. Mm -hmm. And it makes for like clunky writing and clunky thinking when you have to like write for the worst faith possible interpretation of everything you're doing. And it's not always on the defensive. Yeah. And it's not a good way to think either. And like, even like since I started getting on TikTok and started being very successful on TikTok, I've even had like friends in real life be like, like tell me that I have started talking differently. Like I will like cut myself off in the middle of a sentence and say like, that, oh, sorry, that probably sounds like I'm saying this. And they're like, no, it doesn't. No, that, that's a crazy thing to think. Like, of course it doesn't sound like that. So yeah, it does give you a kind of a brain worm that I do not love. 
which is part of a big part of why I started a Substack. And I really value being able to write in long form and being able to express my ideas exactly how I want to express them. And it's, it is kind of like, it feels like a breath of fresh air when I put something out and people aren't like, I don't know, rushing for the most insane possible interpretation <laughs> of it. So why do you keep doing TikTok? It, it seems like you're aware of some really negative consequences of using this place and putting yourself out there like that and being in a particular style of discourse with the people who are responding to you. You have a big following there. You must be getting something out of it. I do make content that is relatively different than what I used to make when I had like when I had 40,000 followers, 50,000 followers. There are a lot of things that I just like will not touch on TikTok because there's no point. And, what won't you touch? Um a lot of the thornier issues around feminism or like anything very political. I definitely think I either try not to touch it or I think very carefully and meticulously about what I say. Because sometimes it just like, you know, for my own health or whatever, like even if it's, and it sucks because it's like, it's all stuff that I care deeply about, that I have cared deeply about for as long as I can remember. But it's just not worth putting out that stuff for my own health if I know for the next two weeks on every available platform, people are going to be like talking about me just like in the worst possible way because... Again, of like, I feel like a broken record, but the misinterpretation is extremely rampant. And that's something that happens a lot on TikTok that is a really big problem. Like, when I got on the platform, almost all of my like peers who were people with big followings talking about feminism, almost all of them have left the platform or don't post anymore, which is crazy. But there totally is like a very short life cycle of what people can take. And I've been on the internet for a really long time and have had different kinds of large followings over the course of my life. And I feel like I'm kind of uniquely able to cope with and like reckon with the backlashes that I might get or the comments that I get, um, which is why I think it's easier. I have, I have a, a relatively established sense of self, so it's kind of uh, easier for me. What are some strategies you have to be able to insulate yourself from some of that backlash? Um, I mean, the biggest thing is that I make sure that everything I, I put out, I 100% believe in. And that's like the only thing that has helped me really, because the thing that I think was really hard for me is when I would put something out and I wouldn't be like completely proud of it. Or like, that's when the criticism would actually sting or whatever is when I felt like I really <clears throat> could have done it better or I could have made a point differently but when I like know that what I'm saying is is justified and I believe in it or I mean I also like a lot of my TikTok now is like I make jokes and I talk about my life and whatever and as long as I earnestly believe that that stuff is funny or that it's like that it's entertaining or that it's like critically correct it's a lot easier for me to kind of take the criticism as it comes who are you talking to when you're on TikTok you're a prolific user of social media in general TikTok Instagram Twitter, Substack, who do you imagine you're addressing when you're speaking to camera? I honestly usually try not to think that much of who is consuming what I create because 
I don't like to think of myself necessarily as like producing for the sake of an audience. Like I do view a lot of what I do as like a kind of performance. Like I'm playing a character on the internet. I'm very open about that. I'm like kind of an actor in a lot of ways. Like I'm. You don't mean in the beliefs that you're discussing in the like in the feminist ideas you're discussing, but in the yeah. way you present. Yeah. No. Of course. Like I believe in everything I say, and I. Everything that I put out, I, I have a reason for putting it out, and I think that it's important. But a lot of what I do on the internet is that I have a persona. And for better or for worse, a big part of the reason why people consume what I write or want to consume what I say is because they are attracted to my persona. Which, again, like frankly, is something that I'm not particularly comfortable with, and it's not something that I love. And in the long term, I would love to be off, the, off of the internet. But... Particularly as a as a woman writer, it's something that women writers increasingly have to do is to curate a public performance that uh, makes their work attractive as kind of a uh, like a vector for themselves. You know what I mean? So, yeah, all that to say that I do try not to think that much about the people who are consuming my work and everything that they might think about me. But in general, like. When I write, I'm writing for young women. I most of my audience, I think, is between the ages of 15 and 23, predominantly women. And I always try to write everything that I that I write and everything that I say. I do try to do for that audience because you know that's what I was when I was consuming the writing that shaped me. And that's a community that is really, really important to me. How different is that persona to the? to the person you are in, in real life? Similar in a lot of ways. It's, I mean, I think that everybody on the internet, anybody who is famous on the internet to any degree, even if you're not famous on the internet, even if you're just like a prolific poster, everybody inevitably is picking out parts of their personality and emphasizing some and trying to shove some other ones under the rug because like, that's what you do. And that's what you're doing in real life too, sometimes. Everybody inevitably is playing a character that is largely based on who they are in real life, but is also distinctly separate. And that's what I'm doing. From the, from the start, it's been kind of a, a caricature of who I am. I'll, sometimes I create content that to me is somewhat satirical, is like making fun of how I think people perceive me. Like when I play up the vocal fry on TikTok and stuff like that, like it's kind of a joke. And a lot of my audience like understands that it's kind of a joke, that I'm doing this kind of pastiche of the type of woman that people assume me to be. And I've always found that to be really interesting, and it's something that a lot of women do in real life, too. It's something that a lot of my friends have done for as long as we can remember. Yeah, and it's, it's fun for me, and it's, like, for the people that get it, they, they find it very fun, too. Yeah, so in, to some extent, your performance is a vessel for communicating your ideas, connecting with the audience. But to some degree, it must be something you draw satisfaction from as well, the performance itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there definitely, there's like a feeling of satisfaction when, yeah, like when I, when I make a video that I think is funny or that when I craft a tweet that I, I can tell people are going to like it when I tweet it, like as a skill almost, like there is a, a sense of satisfaction in that for sure. When you launched your Substack, you started with a TikTok video and you talked about being very influenced by blogs. 
And I was as well, but from a different era of blogging. So I went to university in the early 2000s, sort of had my intellectual awakening as people were furiously blogging and creating this new world that actually didn't end up going very far because of, well, because of lots of things. But one of the reasons is kind of the economics of blogging weren't there to support them to continue basically going. But you came up in sort of uh, probably the 2010s, the mid-2010s. Mm-hmm. What were the blogs you were reading? Who were the people that were you were reading that were influencing you? A big one was like Rookie Mag, Tavi Gevinson. That was kind of the the big thing for girls. Like, you know, I was like 13, 14, and 2014, 2015. And that was the big thing at that time. Um, and in a larger sense, like, I definitely missed like the blogging boom of the 2000s. Like, I was. Very... It was wild, I tell you. It was a crazy time. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely very. I mean, it's very like lionized now. Like the way people talk about it, it, it sounds like. This is how we try to make ourselves seem crazy. cool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like for, for me, a lot of it was like Tumblr and um, like these sort of individual writers that were like blogging on like Jezebel or a lot of it was like anonymous teenage girls on Tumblr. Like that was, that was my introduction to like revolutionary feminism. That was my introduction to a lot of the ideas that have shaped who I am is these like, you know, random like 17 to 20 year old girls blogging under like a shit post username on Tumblr. (laughs) And I always thought that that was just so cool. And I like refreshed those blogs religiously. And that's also like something that I try to emulate in Internet Princess, like from the beginning, I always like typed all in lowercase, and some people really hate that, <laughs> which I understand. But I really wanted to emulate that feeling of like when you're on a blog when you're 15 and you feel like this person is talking directly to you in a language that you can both understand, like like it's a text or whatever. I always thought that was really cool, and it it feels like it leveled the playing field a little bit. So it's not one person like. I don't know, talking to you or talking at you, but that you guys are like equals having a conversation. Mm. And to what extent do you feel like you're replicating that now on Substack, which is something very different to TikTok, very different to these other social platforms? Um, I mean, it's always going to be different. Like, obviously, Substack isn't Tumblr in a lot of ways that are good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's not as much of like a social platform necessarily, but... I think that that kind of, for lack of a better word, that vibe that I that I loved and that I was trying to capture in a lot of ways really has been replicated. And it's like, like genuinely like the single thing that brings me fulfillment and meaning is when like young women will comment or they'll message me or they'll email me, which feels very retro. <laughs> and, you know, they'll say that like my blog made them want to write or made them want to start a Substack or on Tumblr, like people will write reflections or responses to the things that I publish on Substack. And that single-handedly like is the only, like the only thing for me, like that makes me feel rewarded in all of it. So when you say you want to one day live off the internet, you wouldn't mind keeping this little slice? Of course, yeah. Yeah. Right, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, and I love, like, I love the internet. Like, in many ways, I worship the internet. I, like, the internet has given me so much, both in terms of, like, material opportunities, but also just in terms of, like, 
who I am in a really wonderful way. Like I, I have done a lot of criticism of like communities that formed around mental illness on the internet. A lot of my writing is about struggling with pretty severe mental illness and mental health issues. And I'm quite critical of the communities that formed on like Tumblr and on TikTok around being depressed or being a mentally ill woman or whatever. But at the same time, like as critical as I am of those communities, there are so many parts of it that were so beautiful, like that introduced people to like art and music and writing that helped them grapple with their experiences and that helped me like understand who I was. And there's so much of that stuff that just can't be replicated in the same way. What are your critiques of those communities? Um, I think that they increasingly encourage young people, particularly young women, to like uh, glamorize and romanticize their suffering and their pain uh, in a way that inevitably encourages them not to try to get better because there's something unique and beautiful and like tragic and skinny about being sad. What, is, what do you mean skinny? <laughs> the, Explain I, it I'm like sure you're talking to an No, what I'm talking about. In a lot of ways on the internet also, this is something that I struggle with is, again, particularly in these communities that form for young women, there's a lot of stuff that is only romanticized or is only idolized if you look a certain way i.e. are like tragically but beautifully skinny mm. or just like beautiful in general. Like even being a, being a writer, this is something I've talked about before is like, you know, there is this like archetype that thrived on Tumblr that is, I don't mean to build myself up or anything, but is a degree of why I'm successful is this like very fetishizable archetype of like the esoteric, beautiful, like stylish girl writer which I, sorry that I said that about myself. I like don't want to, I don't, I, I don't necessarily think that about myself, but it's a box that people try to put me into and that I feel a lot of pressure to conform to sometimes. Right. And I've, I've read you or heard you talk about the commodification of mental illness on social media, mm-hmm. but I also see you talking about mental illness and being a sufferer over it uh, and, uh, you know, knowing people with it and, using social media and Substack as a platform to have kind of hard conversations about it. So how do you how do you reconcile those two things? What's the bargain you've made with yourself to get yourself into a point where you're okay with talking about it, but uh, kind of also reacting against what's, you know, the commodification of it on social media? Well, it's tough. Like, it's something that I have not settled on. Like, it's, I don't, I don't have an answer for you because I don't necessarily have one for myself. Um, like, it's, it's tough because the fan base that I have and the way that I can present myself, almost anything that I do can become an object of envy or an object of, like, romanticization, which is really strange. Like, you know, I've, I've said before, like, I've, I've tweeted this, I think. It is so strange having spent my entire life, like, fighting tooth and nail against the idea that I am an incurably sad and like fucked up person. And then to like search up my name on Twitter and see that people are tweeting like Rain Fisher Kwan is the ultimate sad girl or that people have like Spotify playlists called like Rain Fisher Kwan depression vibes. (laughs) That's real. (laughs) <laughs> like it's like is it a good playlist it's it's solid it holds <laughs> it. <laughs> I, i've i've bumped it um <laughs> yeah like it's it is strange and it obviously 
is strange juxtaposed against, you know, a lot of the ideas that I hold, the convictions that I have. Um, And it does, like, you know, it makes me struggle with what I can put on the internet. Like, there's, like, you know, I, like many women, have had experiences with disordered eating. And eating disorders are a socially contagious disorder. And as much as I would love to write about some of those experiences, I don't feel like that's anything right now that I can write about extensively because I think it would do more harm than good. Like, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, Rain has an eating disorder. Like, or she, you know, not that that's even necessarily true. Well, but. The way the way I can be like Rain is to <laughs> yeah. have an eating disorder. Totally. And like that happens with like so many women on the internet. Like it just because of the way that mental illness operates and the way that these communities form, like no matter what, there's always going to be that element of recreation or... Like, you know what I mean? A little bit of glamorization. Yeah, glamorization for sure. Yeah, I've heard of um, some people in this office have worked for Instagram and talked about the problems of like inspiration on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I can see how these things, how these things travel. So, what is what is it about essay writing that you like? I don't know. I I like to do it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, I like writing. I, this is not a criticism. I think we, still, we <laughs> no, quite like no, it as well. <laughs> no, no. Um, sorry, I didn't mean for that to sound offensive. I was just like, I was like, I don't know. What do I like about it? Like I, the reason I ask in that tone is because it's, it's, it's such a different thing. It's a different format. You're great at all of these formats. It's different from making a TikTok video. It's yeah. different from a Twitter account that's sometimes private and sometimes public. It's different <laughs> from a very visually oriented Instagram presence. It's you. It's like a different. You have to use a different brain to do it. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, what part of your, like, what part of you gets exercised by the idea of writing an essay? I mean, I was a writer like far before I started on TikTok or before I really blew up on social media. Like, I was. I've been working as a writer since I was 18. And many many years now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess three years. <laughs> But it feels like it's been a long time. And, I mean, when it started, to be honest, it was something that I was just, like, okay enough at to do for money. To be, to be totally honest, I, like, needed money. Um, Is that the Substack part or the work When I just started part? working as a writer, yeah. <clears throat> like, freelance and stuff like that. You chose a pretty bad way to make money. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I know. <laughs> like, the first... This is kind of a funny story. Like... The first pitch that I ever sent, I sent to Vice, and the first pitch that I ever sent, it got accepted by some, like, insane miracle, and I was like, this is so easy, like, (laughs) I'm going to be making a million (laughs) dollars, so I put all my eggs in that basket. Um, What did you get paid for that piece? Actually, I got paid, like, $400. That's pretty good by itself. It was pretty good. How long was the piece? How many words? 800 it was a reported piece yeah so like that was a really good first experience as like a recent like insane clinically insane college dropout and uh so yeah I was like this is gonna be so easy and then I went like two months without getting another pitch accepted (laughs) but despite you trying despite me trying yeah but yeah I mean it started because it was just something that I thought I could do um and I I never really planned on being a writer. It was like never the path that I had set out for myself. But I mean, honestly, like most of my essays that come from Substack or that, that I post on Substack are like, I would be writing them even if nobody saw them. Like it's like when I, when there's something that is like stuck in my brain, like almost everything that I write on Substack, I like 
sit down in the middle of the night and I write it in six hours and then I like publish it almost immediately because it's very much like it just like it's it's something that I have to be like fixated on and I'll be talking about it and everybody in my life will like tell me that they don't want to hear me talk about it anymore <laughs> and then it just like kind of comes out on me and that's kind of how I like excise those fixations or these feelings so it is like I feel like this is kind of cheesy but it is like quite therapeutic sometimes and it helps me like move on with my life uh, when I'm really like angry about something and once you've published a thing, are you just done with that idea? You move on to the next thing, and what sort of? How does it kind of linger in your life? Um, I mean, most of the stuff that I publish on Substack tends to surround a, a pretty similar theme. Like a lot of the stuff that I write, you know, analyzes the internet, analyzes aspects of womanhood and of neurosis, and especially, I tend to be very interested in performance, particularly feminine performance, and the way that the internet exacerbates and interacts with performance in interesting and sometimes sinister ways. Um, So that's a common theme that affects a lot of my work that I never stop thinking about. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say, like, I I wouldn't say there are like eras of my my writing that I, I just write about something and then I don't think about it anymore. But it helps me stop being fixated on one specific thing. But I'm always thinking about the wider themes that drew me to that thing in the first place, I guess. Mm-hmm. And some of this has been a genuinely long-standing interest for you. Like in, in your high school years, you were, you, had, you were an activist and you became kind of known in Canada for this, right? It, well, you, I, I've seen media clips about you. You've been uh, put on TV and you were advocating for... I'll let you explain in more detail what you're advocating for, but in, in general, it seemed like to protect sex education and in a way that makes sense for the era we live in um, when was it the Ontario government was trying mm-hmm. to roll it back and take it back to the to the 90s or something like that yeah yeah this is something I actually tend to shy away from discussions about my activist history for I'm sure we can get into that but uh, yeah when I was in high school I was part of a group of young students that were protesting this decision made by the government of Ontario a very conservative government came into power and they um, rolled back recent changes to the sexual education curriculum and the indigenous education curriculum to a curriculum that was put in place in 1998 and that didn't mention consent or gender-based violence or gender identity or gay marriage or like a, it was like comically regressive And they also, they rolled back the proposed indigenous education curriculum. They ended up making a lot of cuts and changes to, uh, like, resources for students with disabilities. It was extremely, like, egregious and made me feel sick and scared and very upset, you know, as somebody who had both experienced kind of gendered violence for a lot of my life. And my younger sibling is is autistic and is trans, and I was uh, very upset and very concerned. So yeah, me and some other students, we started organizing protests and then we organized a walkout and it ended up being the, at the time, at least the largest student walkout in Canada's history or the largest high school student walkout in Canada's history. I mean, something that I struggle with is that I feel that I, like you said, I was put on TV and I became relatively known in Canada. You did a TED talk. I did did do a TED talk. And it's something that I, 
usually I actually tell people that I don't want them to refer to me as an activist now or I don't really want to talk about it that much because I think that I got far too much credit for what was a, a communal effort and specifically like white women tend to be able to profit personally and monetarily quite heavily from activism that is most radically usually done by like women of color and that totally happened to me and I was kind of propped up by the media in a way that I really don't think was fair. So what do you call yourself now? I would call myself an advocate I guess I mean if you're putting a gun to my head um, like I'm definitely an advocate for social issues that I care about deeply, but I'm not organizing right now. I'm I'm not on the ground. Um, normally, I just call myself a writer. I call myself a cultural critic. <laughs> yeah, writer's good. What was it like having that experience when you're young, when you're teenage, you're 16 years old, and that sort of stuff is happening? Is that, is that right? Yeah, 16. And being in the spotlight, being um, put out front of some of these things, and being on TV, etc. How has that influenced how your thoughts? about putting yourself out there now on social media and on Substack? Has it changed any of your um, thinking about how to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, all of my experiences on the internet have obviously been very formative, again, in both positive and negative ways. Like, I mean, one thing that I think happened to me when I was, like, 16 and my brain was developing and I was put on TV and people were tweeting about me and stuff is that I do think I got chemically addicted to attention, like, uh, unironically. Um, Were they tweeting good things or bad things? Both. Hmm. And, you know, it's crazy. Like, even the bad stuff, it activates the same thing in your brain. Like, this is, like, horrific. I'm sorry to say this horrific thing. But, yeah, like, when I was 16, I would look up my name and there would be, like, a popular thread on 4chan of people talking about wanting to sexually assault me or, like, the ways in which they would do that. And that is, like, when you're 16 and you see that, it really does, like, flip something in your brain. <laughs> and so, like, it, it definitely introduced me very young to, like, the violence of the Internet and this really scary parts about the Internet. But it also made me a little spiteful, I think. Like, I think I was like, fuck you guys. Like, I'm not going to get off the Internet now. Like, because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when that stuff happens, like, the opposition to, like, a young woman talking about feminism or whatever, like, the fact that that opposition still exists, like, if anything, made me feel a stronger conviction in wanting to talk about it. And I also know that I can pretty much handle it, you know, for whatever reason, and if so, you know, it's better that I do it than people who can't handle it, I guess. Do you still feel addicted to attention? Yeah. Is that an advantage or a disadvantage when it comes to doing the work you do? publicly? Uh, I don't know. Like, I think I'm very happy that I am aware of it because first of all, I think almost everybody who posts to some degree on the internet is addicted to attention. I mean, like most of these apps, like literally try to make you addicted to the attention, like actively. Um, It's having quite a large shaping influence on culture, right? Yeah. That there's kinds of things, the content and the behavior that are rewarded are the things that they've helped to bring in about in the first place, which is yeah. attention-seeking. Totally. And, yeah, like, reactivity and, yeah, and that's something that I don't like about the internet and I don't want to take a part in is is this, like, this, like, just, like, libidinal desperation for 
attention and for validation. And I think the good thing about me being kind of aware of that I do have kind of this like dependence in my brain on getting it is that I can almost kind of recognize like when the synapses are firing or whatever. And it's honestly sometimes a sign that I need to like take a break or do something different. Like I think that it is wrong for like usually the things that, that accrue you the most attention on the internet are things that I consider to be like morally or ethically wrong and not the kind of thing that I want to do with my platform so it's good for me to I have it's good for me to be able to recognize when something is like is is giving me that rush because it's usually a sign that I need to take it down or do something differently. Do you worry that if you kind of heal that problem or this um, this part of yourself that you're not comfortable with, if you fix that, then it might kill the magic that gets you that helps you be effective at communicating the messages you want to communicate? Well, I'm never going to get better. So <laughs> it's not a problem. But no, I don't think so. I think that my audience, the thing that they tend to appreciate me for is, I mean, I'm so lucky in this. Like, I think my audience, the thing that they tend to appreciate me for is that I generally try to to do right, like on the internet. Like, I try to behave in a way that is a little bit different, I think, than a lot of people. And I want to keep getting better at that constantly. And I think that I am lucky enough to have developed like a community and a following that really appreciates that and and wants wants the things that they are attracted to to change too like you know they really value their their attention spans and they value nuance and all of that stuff and I feel really lucky to have that because they also like I, everybody says this but like they really do kind of push me to be better and it's something I'm grateful for what's your like knowing that you um well you you say you grew up you kind of escaped the worst, the most unfortunate generation. The most unfortunate generation are the ones who grew up with the post-2016 versions of the algorithms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, seeing what you've seen, knowing what you know about what it takes to succeed in these environments, on these platforms, and seeing the effect of it on young people's minds, what, what's your level of optimism for where the world is going? And maybe we can view that through like the lens of the media economy and how that's influencing people's thoughts and conditioning their minds? Big question. I mean, so you're saying, what am I, what am I hopeful for? Like, are future generations going to be okay? Yeah. Are they going to be able to escape these, like the negative parts of these media ecosystems? <sighs> yeah. I mean, I genuinely don't know. Uh, I really hope so. And I really hope, I mean, that's what I try to do with my work is to encourage people to seek something different. Um, something that does, like, this is kind of going to sound like a joke, but something that does honestly bring me a little bit of hope is that whenever something becomes too popular, most people start hating it <laughs> and, like, consciously uh, abstaining from it. And I do think that is starting to happen on the Internet in a big way. Like, I think people, especially people who are, you know, tastemakers or have some degree of social capital or clout are starting to very consciously, like almost in a contrarian way, resist these like modes of being on the internet in a way that I think is like really similar to like when people started hating disco or whatever. Like it's just cool to like hate the mainstream <laughs> always. And I think that pendulum is starting to swing and people are starting to kind of perform their intellectual contrarianism by criticizing the way that the internet operates and criticizing the way that like masses work on the internet. And I do 
think it's possible that that could actually be a material force of change to some degree. But it's also tough. I mean, like these, I can't even wrap my head around what these companies can do and what their engineers can do. Um, So I do find it quite scary. And it's something like, honestly, sometimes I really struggle with what it means for like me to be producing content on the internet and encouraging people to stay on the internet. Like, I don't know, sometimes I wonder if I should just like make a blog post telling everybody to like log off forever. (laughs) (laughs) What's your ideal outcome? The life, when you picture a life in the future, in a career, what would be perfect for you? Um, I don't know. I, to be honest, I, I really do try not to think about it that much. <laughs> but I, I want to write a book. I'm like in the process of writing a book. And I'm, again, so lucky to have had those opportunities come to me because of what has happened to me on Substack. I'm hoping to, in the long term, write for TV, like write a series or a film, which is also something that I'm kind of working on in the back of my head. I think that ultimately, like when I think about my wildest dream, I really do like I I want to write something or produce something that creates or shifts culture rather than just like comments on it. A lot of what I do right now is criticizing culture. I would love to one day be able to create a kind of culture and yeah, I, I want to make one really, really good thing, basically, in the long term with my life. And then once I feel satisfied with that, I, I want to, like, be a teacher or something. Like, I, I want to, like, be on a farm. <laughs> like, seriously. Like, I, sometimes I, like, hope I can retire, like, from public life or whatever when I'm, like, 35 and do something totally else. Because I don't think it's super good for me. And I don't think it's necessarily super good for anyone but i also do love it which <laughs> is uh is strange <laughs> yeah i tell you after 35 internet addictions don't get any better <laughs> 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 who are your role models who do you want to be like who are my role models joan didion um phoebe waller bridge kim deal from the pixies <laughs> uh kurt vonnegut what an awesome list. <laughs> you went as Fleabag for Halloween, I noticed, from your, uh, I did. From I did your Instagram account, which is yeah. a very entertaining Instagram account. I encourage everyone to <laughs> enjoy it from a performative uh, point of view. If you Did you get to the video of me eating the raw onion? No, I didn't go that deep. <laughs> if you scroll back far enough on my Instagram, there I did a series of videos of me eating different raw vegetables that are pretty funny. Was I mean, onion on. the most hardcore of the, the vegetables? Onion was the toughest for me, personally. Yeah. What sort of, um, what did you learn from that? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Sorry, I thought that was going to have layers. No, I became more ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're making money on Substack. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how comfortable you are talking about that sort of thing, but you actually wrote an anniversary post uh, for being, was it two years on, on Substack the other day? It's been about one year. One year, sorry. Um, we'll fix that in post. <laughs> <laughs> and you're thanking the community of readers you have and how meaningful this has been to you. And I think part of it was like, you're in this position now where you're actually, you can make some money. And I'm wondering what effect that has had on your life. Oh, I mean, it's been crazy. I mean, I have like... It's, it's been 
strange. Like when I was starting to be a writer and starting to try to be a writer, I mean, something that just felt like this insurmountable boundary was that like everybody that I saw working in like Canadian media or whatever had really rich parents and had done all these prestigious unpaid internships because their parents were paying their rent and had just like a level of uh, like financial and interpersonal privilege that uh, I couldn't fathom. And I mean, like at the time I was like 18, financially independent, living effectively on the poverty line for two years and so when you say financially independent in that sense, you don't mean I was, um, I'm doing well, I'm, fi- I'm financially independent. You mean no one else is looking after you financially? Yeah. Like, I think I was on my parents' phone plan still, but like I was paying my own rent and I was living 5,000, 4,000 kilometers away from like my family and like, like I was very much on my own in a lot of ways. And that was like, you know, it was a, it was a choice and it was the product of a series of circumstances <laughs> But, you know, and I, like, my family and the way that I grew up was, seemed so different from all of the people that I saw succeeding in the writing industry. It's actually, my mom got so mad. This is a tangent, but when I first got published in the New York Times, all of the comments, like, the piece had so many comments, and everyone was like, she obviously has autism. Like, it was really, it was quite strange. What was the piece about? It was about dropping out of university. And the comments were were quite strange, and a lot of them were like, she's clearly a nepotism baby whose parents, like, paid for her to be in the New York Times. And my mom, like, obsessively reads all my comments, and she was, like, like laughing, but in a crazy way. Like, she was, like... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, maniacal? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She was, like... Yeah, I mean, my mom has been on disability for my whole life, and she was, like... She was like, "Can you tell them? Like, can you can you tell them about that?" And I was like, "I don't think editor's notes." By the way, Rain's mom. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, all that to say, I mean, when I started my Substack, I was like totally broke and in a really just a completely different phase of my life. That I mean, I I could not have imagined that I would be like comfortable now and like I live in like a nice apartment and. I mean, a lot of writers, I think it seems inconceivable that you could, like, make an okay amount of money as, like, a young writer with no education and no, like, connections or anything. And I don't think I would have been able to do that without Substack. I sound like an advertisement, but, but yeah, I mean... Don't worry, it's just being printed to be uh, put on billboards here to speak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and obviously, like, my experience is also really unique and, like, I have, yeah... I feel just like exceptionally lucky and I never stop thinking about how lucky I am. And yeah, it's been a really, really crazy year and it just blows my mind that people want to listen to what I have to say, honestly. <laughs> They're not crazy. You're, you say incredibly interesting things and you articulate them in a, a beautiful way. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to read you and Thank people you. are lucky to have you doing this work with them on the, on the internet. What, what do you think is the consequence of a writer like you, suddenly, I don't mean to make it too personal, not just about you, but like, what is one potential social consequence of writers like you being able to actually make money now when that would have been less possible perhaps in the past? I mean, I think that it allows for just like a totally different ecosystem of like popular writing. Like, I mean, 
like I can't speak for a ton of what the writing ecosystem is like in the states, but like in Canada, it's almost a joke how like every writer at every mainstream popula- or publication is so like conservative and just like repeats the same talking points like again and again. And obviously a huge part of that is because it's so homogenous, like the background that these people come from and there's so much nepotism um, and uh, so You have many... to be wealthy enough to afford to be a journalist and not get Yeah, paid. totally. Yeah, totally. Like there's like strategic, strategic barriers put in place to prevent people with like interesting and subversive and radical points of view from being able to publish those points of view. It does feel very strategic. And I mean, the fact that there are other avenues now, I think, is going to be able to do really great things for the cultural ecosystem. And I don't know, and the, the discourse in general, I guess, because like so many great writers, like it's, it's a tragedy, like how many great writers have to stop writing and work in advertising or something because, because you just can't. Kurt Vonnegut started in advertising. Yeah. <laughs> somehow figured out how to be a full-time writer. Yeah. Why did you drop out of college? Mm. Why did I drop out of college? I was very mentally ill, basically. <laughs> yeah, not much more to it than that. I couldn't, I couldn't get out of bed. And I was, I can't remember it very well, to be honest. But yeah, I have always had a series of mental health issues that really came to a head in my first year of university. And it was just untenable for me to be there, and I couldn't do it. I was totally non-functional. Yeah, so I dropped out of school. I mean, I have mixed feelings about it. Like, I really, there's a lot of aspects of academia that I liked, but I don't know if academia is ever going to be accessible to me. I, I doubt that it ever will be for a variety of reasons, but yeah, I, and it, I was studying something totally different. I was studying theoretical physics and mathematics in, in university. Which is what everyone would have guessed. <laughs> 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 yeah, and, and I mean, like, the reason why I started writing truly is because I dropped out of school and I was living in Vancouver and I was, like, totally insane. And I, like, was, like, I had, didn't have a fixed address and I couldn't. I was either sleeping for like 24 hours or not sleeping for 24 hours. And yeah, like I just like I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could have a normal job. It didn't feel like an option. And yeah, that's why I started writing is because I needed a job that I could do from anywhere at any time, pretty much. That was really flexible. And yeah, so I just started lying and telling people that I was a writer. And I kind of like made made up like a resume and stuff. And I started getting jobs I would Poetic say, license? I would say that I maybe exaggerated some aspects of the truth, maybe. <laughs> and I actually got like a job at a music magazine, which was just like so unbelievably lucky. What magazine was it? It was called Next Magazine. It was new. It started kind of during the pandemic. And they had me as like a, an editor, which was so amazing. And I did not... I mean, I like my literally I wrote a cover letter where I was like, I don't really have experience and I don't have an education, but I, I'm pretty cool. <laughs> like genuinely, that's what I wrote. I was like, I've had kind of an interesting life and I like will. And it was like bullshit and I can't believe it worked. And I was really desperate. Like, that's not like that's not the kind of person that I am necessarily. I don't think I'm I'm really that cool, but it was like. 
yeah, I was just like, I will write cool stuff and you should take a chance on me or whatever. And then they gave me the job, which was very lucky. (laughs) (laughs) It's changed how I've thought about writing cover letters. (laughs) (laughs) What do your parents think about how you're living your life now and how you're making a career? They're very proud of me. Uh, And they've always been really proud of me. Like, I have great parents and they always, from a really young age, they, like, encouraged me to, like, think really critically, like... Um, my dad, like, from the time that I was little, if I would ever, like, say, like, a fact or, like, something that I learned in behind, like, the information that I had just learned. Little did he know he was pushing you on a dangerous path towards (laughs) theoretical physics. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, so, and, yeah, my parents are really cool, and they have always been really supportive, and now that I am kind of successful and doing okay, they are obviously just so proud but I do think they would be proud of me no matter what and it makes me really happy too like my my dad he's a teacher he teaches the like first grade maybe I'm getting that wrong but I hope he doesn't see this Um, (laughs) he teaches first grade and but he went to school to be a screenwriter and he always wanted to be a writer and it makes me really happy that that I can be a writer and I think that he feels really proud of me that's awesome and what does your mom think about the onion thing? <laughs> she was perplexed. <laughs> she was perplexed. I mean, she's always like, she, I mean, her big thing, like, she's very supportive, but she's always just like wondering if I'm doing okay, which is like understandable um, as a mother. So every so often I'll post something that uh, sets off some alarm bells, and the onion was one of those things for her. <laughs> but we reached an understanding. <laughs> So you're a role model for a bunch of writers on Substack and a bunch of your peers. Uh, Gen Z is a, is, is a category that is... Is it even Gen... Is it, um, is it a, like an old person thing to say Gen Z? No, 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 no. <clears throat> Yeah, right. Okay, Gen Z <laughs> is a category that's sort of emerging on Substack. We're very big with boomers. <laughs> but I'm wondering who you're... Um, perhaps you can help enlighten us. Like, who are you reading? Who would you recommend? Who's... Who's someone who's doing great work on Substack that you were, you think is worth paying more attention to? I was told to consider this question one day ago, and I totally forgot to do it, to be <laughs> honest. There's a writer who her Substack is Fran Magazine, and she does like film criticism and just general criticism that I think is so good and so interesting, and I love reading her stuff. I've read a couple essays from this writer, Kieran McLean, McLean, maybe, who also has a substack and who I, all of his essays I think are so interesting and really push like my kind of assumptions or my usual pattern of thinking. And he's a very principled leftist and I love his work. And my friend Charlie has a substack called Evil Female and she's a very dear friend of mine. Sorry, they're a very dear friend of mine. And I love their substack and their essays are a huge inspiration for me too. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that those links are all published in the show notes so they can get huge new audiences now. But thanks so much for joining us on The Active Voice. Thanks for coming to San Francisco and meeting all these people who work on your behalf. Um, We're so proud to have you on Substack. Thank you so much for having me and thank everybody for coming. And (laughs) Yeah, I feel very lucky to be on the platform and very lucky to be here. You can find Rain on Substack at internetprincess.substack.com. It's holiday time, so we're going to take a few weeks off for the Active Voice. 
But I'm going to be back in January with more great writers and more great guests. And I look forward to seeing you then. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D.substack.com.